Welcome to our fourth episode of After the Breach podcast. We're your hosts, Jeff Friedman and Sarah Shimazu, and we're excited to welcome our guest to the show, our friend, captain, talented artist, professional guide, Tasley Shaw. Uh, she works up here in the Salish Sea as well, but she's on the other side of the Canadian border with Ocean Eco Ventures. Uh, she's a rock star with our local humpback whales. We're so excited to have her on, and we'll be chatting with her all about them tonight. Uh, we hope you enjoy it, and we can't wait to bring you even more whale-filled episodes from here on out. So, Tasley, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. Welcome, Tasley. Thank you so much, you guys. Um, for the listener at home, these two are very hardworking and have a wonderful setup and just got off the water, and I can't believe they're talking to me after a day on the water these days. I'm just totally knackered and can't do anything after being out on the water all day. So it's, it's another, <laughs> thank you. It's another late night recording, uh, another Saturday night at almost 10 o'clock. And for being on the water all day and being this old and living on an Island, that is late. Yeah. I would be in bed by now <laughs> if it weren't, weren't for this, but I'm so excited to be here. So um, but Tasley, you were one of the first people we thought of when we, you know, came up with after the breach, when we were talking about who we would have on as guests, um, your, your name was at the top of the list and we wanted to talk to you about all the humpback whales. Cause you have been doing some amazing work, um, cataloging these guys and just like being a resource for all of us captains and naturalists out here in the Salish Sea. And, um, I know a lot of our listeners are, you know, Fairly local, regionally local, but hopefully we're reaching out to people who don't even know about humpback whales. And so we kind of wanted to just introduce them and, and their presence here and, and their history because they have a fascinating history here in the Salish Sea. Yes, they do. Um, so I guess for for those unfamiliar with humpback whales generally, I kind of describe them as middle of the road size-wise. Um for a baleen whale and these guys basically divide their year into a breeding and a non-breeding feeding season. Um, I guess in the parlance of the gym bros, a bulking season and a cutting season. (laughs) Um, So they migrate to the Salish Sea each spring to replenish their fat stores and eat and eat and eat and eat um though what exactly on and when and uh where and how is actually currently being studied um in this region because of course uh humpback whale feeding behavior i think has been pretty well described elsewhere um of course the coordinated bubble net feeding of southeast alaska comes to mind um but since these animals have made a fairly sudden comeback in the area, we're left scrambling, picking up the pieces uh, to try and understand these seemingly basic things about their behavior in the Salish Sea specifically. Yeah, yeah. I know growing up uh, out here myself, like I, I tell passengers this, like I never saw humpback whales as a kid out here. I never really expected to see humpback whales Um Ever, I thought I'd have to travel to other parts of the world to see humpback whales here in the Salish Sea. And and even when I started coming out here, uh, before I moved out here, just in 2010, 11, 12, and even when I moved out here in 2015, it, it was very, very rare to see humpbacks. And what is going on here with the humpback comeback is, is just, it's such an incredible thing to witness and 
one of the most successful conservation stories I think that can be told anywhere on this planet. It's crazy. It's sort of hard to believe. Um, and I guess giving a like really general overview of their history in this region and the exploitation that they experienced, they were considered common to the Salish Sea really through the early 1900s. Um, but they were for a few decades prior to that, they were being chipped away at by commercial whaling, basically all up and down the coast of um, West coast of North America. And I would say the beginning of the end for the Salish Sea humpbacks started in earnest around 1860, approximately um, when there's, there's actually reports from newspapers of the time of humpbacks being taken in the Strait of Georgia um, and even possibly Howe Sound and Saanich Inlet. Um, wow. um, but by the, by the early 1900s, harpoon and vessel technology was, had advanced to a point where there was really no hope for the whales, uh, in the Salish Sea anymore. And I'm still can't believe this when I read it, but there was a whaling station near Nanaimo. Um, and it really only operated for approximately three months, kind of in the winter of 1907 and 1908 and they only operated for three months because after that three months they couldn't find any more humpback whales in the Strait of Georgia to hunt anymore they killed at least 112 of them in three months just from the Strait of Georgia and um, the Strait of Georgia of course being one of the major bodies of water in the Salish Sea and um, this is really kind of believed to have been what extirpated the species from the Salish Sea. Yeah, and just so, you know, those listening at home, extirpation is a local extinction. So they were basically extinct here in the Salish Sea. And I know um, I, I tell people when I talk about humpback whales that that's, that's critical to know because humpback whales learn where to go to feed and where to go to, to breed um, by their moms. And if there's no humpback whale adults left alive that remember that the Salish Sea is... Uh, a place to come and feed, you know, or over over summer, or whatever, they're not going to come back. There aren't going to be any humpback whales here. And just speaking to the the comeback that they've had um, since they were protected um, from from whaling, we have basically in in the Salish Sea this like made for TV narrative that. A whaling station was in operation in the area, 1907, and then basically exactly 90 years later, a humpback whale shows up off of Victoria, and it's photographed by um, a colleague of ours, Mark Mallison, um, and this whale, of course, we now know as Big Mama, and I mean, that could have been her first time in the Salish Sea um, when she was photographed in 1997. And while she wasn't literally the first humpback to be seen in the area since the cessation or end of whaling, to my understanding, she's the first to be documented kind of on a predictable, reoccurring um, manner in the area. And I think to all of us represents the comeback of the species and of course, has known to have brought seven calves back to the area and 
now we basically expect her to be here every spring and it's wonderful. And, and we've, we've mentioned her on previous episodes. I think she may be the most iconic whale, uh, certainly the most iconic humpback that we have in this, in this region. And I think we did talk on one of the earlier episodes that this season she brought her seventh calf back to the Salish Sea. But I think she was an adult when she first came here um, back in 1997. So we don't, we don't know, do we, we have no idea where she was feeding prior to uh, immigrating to the Salish Sea as her, as her feeding area. Yeah, we don't know. Um, I think it would probably be a logical guess that she came from offshore of um, Vancouver Island. There's quite a concentration of humpback whales there. And, um, that's kind of where the first inkling of a, any kind of a comeback for the species was first observed in British Columbia was in the offshore waters. So, um, but why she chose to wander in here, <laughs> anybody's guess. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that today when we were on the water because today was a, a humpback day. We had ended up with four different humpbacks uh, throughout the day today. And I was thinking, and I love to think about this from from the perspective of of the humpbacks, right? Like, did she just stumble in here? Did she follow food, or was there this legend of this lost feeding area passed down, and nobody <laughs> knew where it is? And she was like, "Oh my God, I found it!" The lost city of Atlantis, right? Ex- exactly, <laughs> and and because <laughs> since then, over over the last twenty five years, we have had. Uh, so many adult humpbacks all of a sudden show up here and then with their calves this is this is their feeding area and it just makes me wonder if if it's if it's you know if big mama's in maui just telling everybody hey i found this new restaurant or if she's like hey i found the old legendary lost feeding area sarah's shaking her head at me by the way (laughs) well i do that quite frequently jeff just to be fair um but (laughs) Speaking of, you know, calves and Big Mama and, and the seventh seventh calf she just brought back this year, um, you know, I, I was really astounded by this new um, ID guide that you just kind of updated this year, Tasley, that you've put so much work into. And you actually created two uh, separate ID catalogs. And the naturalist one uh, specifically had some uh, family trees in it. And Big Mama's was one of those. And I actually did not realize that... Uh, Divot was a potential offspring of Big Mama, and and that would make Big Mama a great grandmother. So that was really really cool to see that. Totally, and I, I'm I'm glad you noticed that because that was I kind of only uncovered that recently. Um, of course, again, my collaborator Mark Mallison um, had indicated that um, in 2003, Big Mama had a calf. Um, but, um, up until very recently, there was no photographic evidence of this. And, you know, we want to be as, uh, kind of have a high level of scrutiny when it comes to assigning who, who the mothers are of which offspring and when they are born. Um, so I was hesitant to actually ever say officially that, um, this was her seventh calf. Um, I'd like just because we could never truly confirm if she, 
who was her calf from 2003. And I just kind of randomly stumbled upon this ancient, like dusty old Flickr um, <laughs> account, if anybody remembers that. I don't know if people really use that for photo sharing anymore, but um, it was this lovely um, German fellow who came on vacation to Canada with his wife in 2003 and took these photos, not digital photos, real photos in 2003. And sure enough, I can see big mama and there's like a little calf next to her. And through, <laughs> I, I mean, there was a lot involved with this it, and it did include Google translate, by the way, translating from <laughs> English to German. So I could email this person for more information and, I'm 98% sure that calf is divot. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 98% sure. So that's why in the naturalist version of the catalog, there's a dotted line connecting divot to big mama, which is a tradition used in the Northern resident and big killer whale right. catalogs to indicate an inferred relationship between an offspring and a mother. So, but everything, everything adds up. Um, it makes total sense. So if anybody out there has photos from 2003, go up into the attic, dig them out, see if you've got humpback shots. If we could just get one more encounter um, with just one better photo, it would confirm it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And, and Divot, Divot is one of the humpbacks that, I, that we did see today um, up in the Strait of Georgia outside of Active Pass. Sweet. I, I, she disappeared before I got on scene. And, and well, yeah, she disappeared while we were watching her. Uh, she just uh, went on a long dive, and we never never saw her again. And she divot, um, did have a calf last year. Um, That's right, who I believe, um, April, your colleague, nicknamed Slice. Correct. Yeah. And it's apparently a golf term, as is divot. <laughs> Which That's is right. news to me. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have known. So I'm just curious, like with, with this, and, and for, for people that aren't familiar with, with the humpback comeback of what's going on here, um, and I want to talk a little bit more about the ID guide, because my first year here, the ID guide, our humpback ID guide had, I think, 100 humpbacks in it. And I think we're now up to over 800. Is that correct? I think it was 801 individuals <laughs> i mean that, that that is just an incredible increase did anybody ever see this coming i mean i i think like my feeling is in 2015 when we had 100 people were like wow this is amazing did anybody have any idea that this, this was going to happen um i don't know that's a good question i don't know if we really anticipated the increase to be so dramatic but of course important to remember that um along with more animals being present there's also been an increased effort um and in a weird way it's partially i think due to the southern residents or lack thereof because generally um the local whale watching community does tend to focus more on other species um therefore we just get more coverage so it's actually, I think things all kind of coincided, all all conspired all at once. You know, the Southern residents stopped being present as much as they were in the past, but 
right around the same time, there did seem to be just generally more humpback whales coming into the area. Um, and as for did we see it coming, um, I think we're going to have to do a little bit of research on that topic. And does the rate of increase in this region mirror the rate of increase in other areas of the coast? Um, and I think it probably does. Um, though it's been suggested that the the comeback of the humpback whale in the Salish Sea kind of is a little behind the comeback in other parts of the coast, like northeastern Vancouver Island, for example, and offshore of um, Vancouver Island, like we discussed before. Um, so increased effort um, generally, and also um, we're starting to look more at the Swisher Bank area, which, um, again, for the uninitiated, is this amazing place that's, I'd say, on the edge of the Salish Sea, um, right where the Salish Sea kind of meets the open Pacific. And there's incredible numbers of humpback whales there. So a lot of the new individuals actually come from that region. I've been out there once. Um, I think it was 20... 20- 2016 in September, I went on a pelagic trip out of Nia Bay and and went out to Swisher Bank, and it it was it was a foggy day, um, but you could see. I mean, there were humpbacks around the boat that you could see, and then you could just hear them everywhere. Well, that, and I've never been out there, but I have been out into the western Juan de Fuca in the late summer and early fall and seeing aggregations of 50 or 70 humpbacks feeding. And it's just as far as you can see and as far as you can hear, um, that's, it's just one of the greatest experiences I've, I've ever had. And I have some video that I can post in the show notes. And we also want to post um, a link for people if they're able to purchase your incredible ID catalogs. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate that because I part of the reason why I produce these things is so we all can appreciate the animals. Um, and so I'm glad that people are able to use them, and they are available in a PDF format at uh, SalishSeaHumpbacks.com. Order now, and we'll include a free mini. Estimated retail value three hundred dollars. <laughs> and we'll and we'll post that link in uh, in the show notes, and you can access our show notes at afterthebreachpodcast.com. Yeah, and I know, like, uh, just a quick quick uh, aside here. Like, I know a lot of people ask me, like, how can I support you know ongoing efforts with these whales? And and one of that for the listeners is is you know buying a, an ID catalog, and you may not use it much, or you may use it once. Um, but it, you know, that, that money goes to supporting directly to supporting Tasley and, and the efforts that she's gone through. I mean, countless hours that she's put into that and, um, you know, Mark taking the photos and, and just all of that, um, just helps, you know, people, researchers out here, um, and, and makes a difference for these whales. Well, and, and for the people that aren't, don't live out here or aren't really as familiar so we depend on those catalogs when we're out on the water because we use them to ID who we're looking at. But just as a for a novice, they're so cool to look through because the variation of the shapes of the flukes and the patterns that are on there, um, it's it's to me it's no different than how 
how the variation in how human beings look. It's the same thing with them. It's it's absolutely incredible to just look through there and and see all the differences. Yeah, and, and maybe we can go into that. Like, um, you know, the the humpback whale catalog kind of broken down by our our X, Y, and Z whales. And uh, for some people, that's like, oh, no brainer. We know what that is. But for a lot of people, I think they probably don't know what what that is. So we do. Um, you know, have a, a code basically for, you know, giving an alphanumeric designation and, and that's in the catalog. So Tesla, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh my gosh. Now this, I'm going to apologize, maybe the boring part of the podcast. Um, <laughs> and I know, I know the, the numbering kind of ID convention can be confusing for humpback whales in this region, especially since we're so used to the killer whales having this really well-established um, pattern of assigning IDs. So going back to the beginning, um, the IDing convention that Sarah mentioned um, for IDing humpback whales in British Columbia was established by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, which is the Canadian equivalent of NOAA or the National Oce- Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And there it's the IDs are BC for British Columbia, followed by either an X, a Y, or Z, depending on the amount of white on the ventral or underside um, part of the fluke. So the X whales are mostly black, the Y whales are intermediate, and the Z or Z, I should say, whales are mostly white, um, which seems simple. So, dear listener, you may be asking, why then are there whales with different ID numbers that start with MM or BCYUKS or CRC or CC or CS and all of these (laughs) kind of, it's very irritating also I know to people when one whale will have multiple ID numbers. Um, so if I could try and briefly explain, um, what happened there. So the department of fisheries and oceans basically stopped cataloging humpbacks in approximately 2010. Um, but of course the whales didn't stop showing up. So it left various Canadian research groups and NGOs to sort of pick up where DFO left off. Um, and they continued to document the whales returning and, of course, in greater and greater numbers. So, of course, there was many whales appearing that weren't in the DFO catalog, which left the researchers to assign what were supposed to be temporary IDs to these new whales, um, which the thinking was, well, they'll get a DFO ID eventually, but that's way easier said than done because of course, when they get one of these BFO IDs, we need to ensure that they're not already in the catalog, which contains thousands of individuals. So this issue of having these temporary ID numbers was getting out of control. And I know in the Salish Sea catalog, it was getting absolutely bloated with these sort of, again, what were supposed to be temporary ID numbers. Um, Thankfully, a few years ago, um, those of us cataloging the humpbacks in BC all got together to create a project called the Canadian Pacific Humpback Whale Collaboration with the goal 
of bringing all of those temporary IDs across British Columbia under one province-wide catalog once again. Um, but it still means that we have to compare each new whale or a candidate for a new ID against all of the thousands of whales in the catalog. So that's basically how I spend my winter. Um, um, but I'm happy to say that the Canadian Pacific Humpback Collaboration has been a success and many are, in fact, the vast majority of the whales that had those temporary IDs have now have a cohesive BC ID number, no more MMs, um, or not as many anyway. <laughs> um, it's kind of like the DFO catalog 2.0, I guess you could say. And, um, but there will always be a lag time from sort of the discovery of the new whales to assigning them an official ID. And I just, sorry, one last thing, one last thing, uh, on an important note, Cascadia research collective of course has been documenting these animals across the entire coast since the eighties. And they use a different, um, ID system, um, which they're, they start with CRC. So for example, Yogi known in British Columbia as BCY 0409, and then to Cascadia research CRC 13657, I believe. Um, so we kind of use those two systems, um, side by side. Well, that's a, a lot of work. I think even more than anyone probably realized how much work you put into that. So one, thank you very much for all of that hard work and for all of your collaborators that, that did that. Cause man, I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. It, I mean, I can, uh, un understand now how much goes into that and how much work and effort and time. And this is such an important, uh, undertaking in terms of research and being able to track who we're seeing here. And, uh, it, it just is such a, a huge value, um, to, to the whale community and to the, the research community. It's just absolutely incredible. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I have to say too, it doesn't work without the participation of the whale watchers. And to be honest, I felt like I was in a unique position to kind of help facilitate bringing in the observations that the whale watchers were seeing um, under this cataloging project. Teamwork makes the dream work. It does. It really does. And the humpback catalog works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know whenever I'm out on the water, like even when I'm driving, I'm always thinking like, all right, if I'm with a humpback, I got to get some shots so I can send them to Tasley at the end of the season. Oh my God. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Honestly, it means the world. So thank you. Of course. Of course. Well, what you do means the world to us. So um, right back at you. So one, one thing that we ask everybody who's, who's a guest, we have to talk about some of your favorite encounters and would love to hear about, you know, any really memorable humpback encounters that really stand out. Um, I know that, uh, you know, Sarah and I probably each have, have some of those as well. Okay. Um, I just want to set the record straight though, that I really am a killer whale person. <laughs> 
We believe you. We believe you. Okay. (laughs) I didn't come into this as like a humpback stand by any means. And um, I guess like everyone in our sphere, like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, if you will, (laughs) like we all are here because of the killer whales and I'm no exception. But of course, um, I'd be more than happy to share probably my best encounter or I don't know, most um, impactful encounter maybe I've ever had on the water. I'm not sure actually how to describe it, but um, funny enough, (laughs) a quote from um, Miss Congeniality, um, that Sandra Bullock movie kind of sums it up. Uh, There's a, a Miss America pageant going on and one of the really ditzy contestants is asked by the host, what's your idea of a perfect date? And she goes, "Mm, I'd have to say April 25th. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. And all you need is a light jacket. (laughs) (laughs) And funny enough on April 25th of 2014, I had one of the humpback whales who we know as Wendy engaging with the vessel and he did so for some time um i honestly don't know how long it lasted it felt like a long time but you know like a paradox it felt like it went by really fast and i'm assuming it was just the pure like adrenaline of being so close to this behemoth and i know these interactions are often referred to as muggings um and Sarah, how would you describe a mugging to the viewers? Well, I, it's a, you know, it's a term that like a few, like people have often heard, like people that have been to Hawaii or whatever, they're like, oh, we got mugged. And I, I always tell people like, that's the only mugging you ever want. Um, but I usually <laughs> describe it as like curious behavior, like a curious interaction. Like they're, they are seeking out something, you know, from us and, that, and something, you know, they're curious about something. Yeah, I, I personally, I've never been a big fan of, of the word mugging because that's usually a negative term and these are such positive experiences. And, you know, it's one of those things like people will ask on the boat, like, oh, how close can you get? And it's like, no, that's, you're thinking about this the wrong way. It's, if they're going to get, if you're going to get close, it's going to be the whale that does it. It's, they're the ones that are always in charge of the encounter and it's always on their terms. And I think it is just incredible when on those rare instances, when a humpback decides for whatever reason to come over close to the boat and it just, everything stops, time stops, the motors stop, your attention on and thoughts of anything other than just be the awe of watching that humpback completely disappear. Completely. And I'm I'm relieved that you both don't totally love the term mugging either. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I've I've never had such an intense interaction on the water, and I haven't really since. Um, like certainly, I've had other humpback whales show this boat directed behavior, um, but this this particular instance felt different and. I don't mean to suggest in any way it was a spiritual encounter of any kind or some kind of ooky spooky, airy fairy crystals 
sage, metaphysical, nothing <laughs> like that. I, I, I think it was just such a unique experience beyond all else that like, you know, the squishy human brain just was completely overwhelmed by this novel. And it was a little frightening, honestly, um, experience. And it must've just triggered a dopamine cascade that I'd never experienced before, but I've never dabbled in psychedelics. So maybe if I had, this would just be a run of the mill day. But, <laughs> but I mean, it was just, it was just like a, it was very special, and I know um, some people kind of get triggered with this stuff when they see it online. Like it kind of um, um, commodifies the whales somehow, or or whatever it is. But it's it's so strange and so cool when it does happen. Like you said, Jeff, it's very rare. Um, but I swear. I made eye contact with Wendy that day. And I, that was like when the human brain dopamine cascade like went to a fever pitch. It was so weird. And um, <laughs> on that note, I kind of chuckle sometimes when I see people post pictures of like a killer whale spy hopping like 300 meters away. And the caption is like, so magical, made eye contact with a killer whale today. <laughs> I'm like, well, if that's your fan fantasy, fine. But uh, I think I can categorically state that I pretty likely made eye contact that day with, with Wendy. Um, and there was a kind of a downside to this encounter, actually, um, because some of my passengers became restless and bored that this was happening. And I have it on video. It's, there's proof there's somebody on the upper deck that's asking the captain like, you know, what about the Capilano suspension bridge? Should I do that? It's like <laughs> just one of these standard tourist <laughs> traps in Vancouver. I couldn't believe it. So what a juxtaposition, right? Right. <laughs> Happening. <laughs> uh, I, I, I know. I, I, it made me think of this time that, that exactly exact thing made me think of this time I was out and I think Jeff maybe you were on the boat with me and we were like it was one of those orca popcorn nights right they just couldn't stay in the water and they were next not next to the boat but they were fairly close like our engines were shut down and um and this person on the boat was sitting next to the open window watching a whale video on her phone I remember that and I was like just look no. up look up you're seeing like look up I, I've nothing, had that, nothing. I've had a, I've had that a few times when we're with whales and people are watching whale videos on their phone. And I was like, "You're seeing this live," and she's like, "I've seen one whale, you know, I've seen it." Um, Check. Oh, we're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. But but back um, back to your story. I mean, it, it is it is a rare event when it, when that happens. Um, you know, when you get, have this interaction with a humpback or, or any type of whale and it's always on their terms and they're always, and I think what makes it so magical is part of what makes it so magical is it, it's completely initiated by them. Um, you know, you're not, it's like, there's nothing you can do to set it up or try and make it happen. It is always a hundred percent they're doing and that is a big component of what makes it so magical other than the obvious of how large they are and how, how, 
gracious and beautiful and, and just incredible they are. And to see that up close. Yeah. I, you know, I'll go ahead, Tazley. I was just going to say totally that it's the, the mystery it's on their terms and direct evidence of that. We, after this encounter with Wendy, less than 24 hours later, we saw him again and he was being a normal humpback whale, air quotes, <laughs> normal humpback whale doing his thing in the Strait of Georgia. He showed zero interest towards the boat. For, like, so he was just in a, in a mood, I guess, the previous day, like so mysterious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've had, I think I, I've had maybe one encounter, one encounter that I can say for sure, like eye contact. And it was, it was with an orca it wasn't with a humpback whale but <gasps> it, it it changes you like I, I want to say it changes you it really does and I just it, there's no going back to the person you were before that happens in my mind completely that's amazing that you had eye contact with a killer whale that is so amazing who was it do you know yeah it was um t37a3 uh, and it was a trip with Jeff. Most, you know, most of these trips are with <laughs> Jeff. Um, and we were in Swanson Channel. It was actually winter. We took a charter out and we we're like, yeah, we're not probably not going to see whales. There'd been like a shore report. And we were kind of like cruising up there. And, and one of our passengers actually was like, yeah, there's whales over there. And both Jeff and I were just like, it's porpoise. <laughs> and then we looked over and it was actually whales. Um, but we stopped. It was right after T37A. Five, no, it must have been a four. Was born? Was it a four? It must have been a four. Yeah, it was a four because it's been a while. Um, and she was like probably two hundred yards off, um, just logging at the surface. The baby was kind of coming up around her. The other kids were with her, and I was sitting up on the bow of the boat, just chatting with people. We're watching this, and then I hear just the water kind of move below me on the other side of the boat. And I just leaned over and looked, and T thirty seven A three was on his or his or her his side, I think, um, looking up at me. And I just remember seeing that eye, just like a few feet below me, right below the surface, looking up at me. And we had a brief moment of <laughs> eye contact, and then he rolled over, exhaled, and went under the boat and back to mom. Whoa! Yeah, it, mind it was, blown. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, I, I guess on a, I was just thinking maybe on a like less one-on-one um, -on -one kind of encounter highlight would just be the first time I got to visit Squisher Bank. And it was reality shifting in its own way. It was so weird to enter this other world where, all of a sudden the dominant seabirds aren't gulls, they're shearwaters mm -hmm. and the ocean power is just so much more evident there. We're so kind of tucked in and safe in our little cozy <laughs> inner Salish Sea. And of course the humpbacks were everywhere, blows illuminated in the sun. And we actually dropped the hydrophone and we could hear humpback whale vocalizing. Um, wow. And the swell was such that and I'm sure you guys have experienced this before when you've been in that neck of the woods, but the swells were such that 
like these, you know, 40 ton whales would be obscured one moment by the rolling wave only to reappear kind of on top of the wave. Mm -hmm. And then you have this surreal moment of like actually looking up at a whale surfacing. (laughs) Um, And I actually photographed a humpback whale that trip who later um, became nicknamed Flint. Um, And he, he's in the original DFO catalog. So he's at least 20 years old, basically. Um, He's never been documented in the inner Salish Sea or really even central Juan de Fuca Strait. So I kind of think of him as like the king of Swisher Bank. Um, uh, And he was actually one of the whales included in a recent research article describing two different individual humpbacks that visited both Mexico and Hawaiian breeding grounds in the same year. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, so what is that? Like, what is that about? Is that like, Oh, I, I, you know, I've, I've ruined my reputation here in Hawaii. I I better, I'm not going to be able to breed if I, unless I go to Mexico. Like what, what it's just remarkable. It's such a long distance to travel in the middle of the breeding season. It's funny that that's where you're like immediate, like reason for them going to different breeding grounds is because that was not mine. <laughs> no, my, my, that was my, where my head first, first one is like, Hey, I've gotten, I've, I've ruined my reputation here and I can't get a date. So I better go somewhere else. The links they'll go to, Hey, <laughs> it's kind of romantic when you think about it, like crossing the entire ocean for you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I switched breeding um, grounds for you. Yeah. Um, I'm not, yeah, I, I guess we can only speculate what the motivation would be. I, I know in the, in the article, they, they reference Flint as a male. Um, I, I'm actually not entirely sure how they determined that or if that was um, based on behavior only. Um, so assuming he's a male, then it's definitely tempting to think of it as, He's trying to spread his seed as far as he can. Um, but um, <laughs> he uh, he actually led me to a lifer bird, oh. <laughs> oddly enough, the second time I encountered him um, off Swifter Bank again. He was breaching over and over again and kind of in a circular pattern and Following behind him were um, Sabine's gulls, which I'd never seen before. And they were dipping down right into the, the spot where he had just crashed down and picking things out of the water. So oh. was he churning up plankton for them to get at or were they eating his skin or what was going on? So I have a special place in my heart for Flint. <laughs> That's really cool. That is very cool. Um, well, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't, maybe it's a little bit of a downer, but I think because we all love these whales, we do need to talk like with the comeback, with this increase in humpback whales in the Salish Sea and just in general, uh, we are seeing that we're having more of a, of a, an impact on them or an anthropogenic, you know, threats to, to humpback whales. And, um, you know, I feel like we should probably take a, a minute at least to mention that and, and kind of what some things are that we can do, do for them. Well, I think certainly one of their biggest threats is entanglement in, in fishing gear. 
It definitely, and I, I was going to mention ship strike, but it's which is of course a a real threat to them, and it's easy to to vilify the like the huge hulking ships that ply the waters. But as you mentioned, Jeff, like the entanglement in fishing gear is a, a, quite a, a problem to say the least. And the Marine Education Research Society's preliminary um, research suggests that 50% or more of the humpback whales in their study area have been entangled at least once because there's a very predictable pattern of scarring that occurs with entanglement. So that's what they're looking at in this study. Um, and in fact, just today, one of the local naturalists shared photos of a humpback whale with very fresh entanglement scars and was able to identify it as sage, um, which is BCX 2073, I think. Um, but they did not have... <laughs> Just, just a dork. Um, but Sage did not have these uh, injuries even a month ago. So it's happened within the last few weeks, um, basically. And um, I don't know. I'm of a particular mindset, and I know a lot of people would disagree with this. Um, but I kind of question like why fishing activity is allowed to be carried out so freely in some cases. Um, and I know that there's constant regulation and that causes a lot of angst. Um, but just, just for things like recreational crab and prawn traps, um, in British Columbia, like if, if we find that there's a significant impact to the humpback whales from those things, like that should alone be a reason to cut back on the, the number of those that we see out on the water. Well, or, um, or at least, you know, figure out a way to invent a better trap, right? And, and, and create fishing gear that is not going to entangle uh, whales. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I hope something like that will, will come to the coast uh, sooner rather than later because 50% is um, a little embarrassing. 50% yeah. of the humpback whales being entangled at least once. Yeah. Well, and this week, I don't think this made a lot of media, but there was a killer whale found entangled in, uh, I think it may have been, off it was either, yeah, it was either fishing gear or crab gear off the coast of Oregon and it was a fatality. What? Yeah. And, yeah. and I don't think they identified the ecotype if it's a, a southern resident, northern resident offshore or a big killer whale. I, I don't think that ID has been. Um, even the ecotype has been determined yet. But yeah, this was just last week. Yeah, and it was pretty fresh uh, from the photos that were online. Um, I know that Noah has been alerted. The reporting party did report it and, and all that. It does look like crab gear. They're not sure if it's commercial or recreational. Um, but yeah, as far as I've heard, it's the first first you know fatality for an orca off our coast from entanglement. And we and we can post a link to the article and I can in the send that to you too, Tesley, if you want to take a look. That would be great. Um, poss possibly an inappropriate time to mention this, but when I was observing two big killer whale males um, a few nights ago, T one twenty five A and T one twenty eight, for those taking notes, the, Al um, the Alaska boys. They, 
the Alaska boys. That's right. Those hardy boys. And they, they were, um, engaging with the, the floats on some type of a, uh, a trap. And I know you guys have seen that many times with, uh, other whales too, right? Grabbing yeah. the line and pulling the float under. <laughs> yep. Or that carrying was, them around like ca- T-77A does. I was going to say, 77A <laughs> loves to grab uh, crab pots and carry them around all day until the uh, entanglement teams show up, and then he lets them go. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky. <laughs> um, and not, not to keep talking about Swiftshire Bank, but to me that feels like a very high-priority area for humpback whale conservation, being that there's such a concentration of of humpback whales there and, and other wildlife too. And it directly overlaps with the ship, all of the shipping traffic coming into the area. And we all know that there's the forecast is not for shipping traffic to decrease right in the area. And we know that two calves from 2019 split fluke and hydras are now both deceased. um, And they both, presumably died from ship strike and do you guys remember um hawkeye that mm-hmm. humpback whale that one of the whale watching boats found floating deceased and one of you straight and so like these three um incidents were in waters adjacent to the western entrance of one of you straight so yeah and how many more happened I mean, that we never know about right exactly it's it's impossible to, well, it's very difficult to know the scope of the problem because yeah, their carcasses are so rarely recovered for necropsy after the fact. Right. So yeah, definitely prioritizing that area is, well, who knows what the cause slowdown, you know, kind of seems like the first reasonable step would be slowing down. Um, And then, you know, with the, entanglement uh documentation and i i didn't attend a kind of a online lecture in tasley maybe you did i think it was last year um but i i do pass this along to passengers who i know are out on the water here um on their own private boats is like if you see an entangled whale like document it and report it immediately um and and you know pass along the numbers and we can post those in show notes too for people who are here um but also never try to disentangle the whale yourself. You know, it it's a, a complicated process and, and one that teams are really uh, trained on. And cutting off part of the entangle, you know, part of the gear uh, could really be detrimental to a professional team coming in and actually successfully disentangling the whale. Yeah, you better preach that... Uh... Don't be like that guy in the famous YouTube video in the red speedo and he <laughs> jumps off his boat and saves the whale. Don't do, don't be that guy. <laughs> no, it's, it's, you, you need to be trained. It's, it's dangerous work to just jump in and, and do that on your own. That, that guy was very lucky. Indeed. Well, I know that was a little bit of a downer, but I felt like we needed to. To talk about no, it's it. it's, impor- know, it's important. It's important. It's in, it's an important topic, and we'll definitely post some links in in the show notes, and you can get those at afterthebreachpodcast.com. 
Um, we do need to talk about some some of our recent sightings. Real quick, real yes, quick. Yes. Sorry, before no, we go no, to no. that. Go. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I like posted on Instagram, asked people if they had any questions. And one of the questions, and I thought it was something really cool we could touch on, uh, dynamics of humpback whales and killer whales, like together, I'm assuming. It wasn't really specified, but we've had some kind of cool, I mean, cool observations, not myself personally, but, well, yes, but in general, like Biggs killer whales and humpback whales, there's been some interesting interactions. Yeah. What, what is with that? Yeah. I ha- yeah. You got me. Yeah. It's, it's, um, well, I've only ever been fortunate enough to observe it myself once, but did, sorry, Jeff, did you have a story about it? Well, we, we did talk about this on one of, one of the episodes earlier, whether Valiant identifies as a, as a killer whale. <laughs> okay. Well, oh. <laughs> yeah he's got a little complex yeah, um, that's the uh, that's I mean, the humpback that that hangs out near killer whales even though he's got scars that you'd think he wouldn't want to be around killer whales and so does his mother mm-hmm. exactly they're both survivors of killer whale attacks um yeah they're very very odd like how kind of um upset and dramatic they get when they're speeding bigs around especially and uh maybe just to share a really brief story but um gary my partner and i were out with jared towers on the research boat um a couple of years ago and we had um p46 p2 uh aka sam (laughs) um come up to the side of the vessel drop a harbor seal it was really weird and it kind of like you know bubbled and sank a bit and then she came back and grabbed it and then went out a little further and started to process it and eat it okay fine everything seems pretty normal but then we happen to be in blackfish sound um where there's quite a concentration of humpback whales and it's like as soon as she started ripping it apart at least three humpback whales came in and they were trumpeting and mm-hmm. just being extra. <laughs> and they were rolling underneath her and Jared was flying the drone at the time under a research permit. Yep. <laughs> Disclaimer. Um, flying the drone over this whole scene and it was like this poor little killer whale just trying to eat her little seal in peace. And these big, <laughs> silly blubberheads kept coming in and just being too much. Um, and she would actually kind of drop the prey when they came too close and back off a little bit. Like there was definitely a little bit of um, almost like intimidation there, <laughs> apparently. It, it's so, an interesting dynamic. To, uh, I've heard stories from Monterey where, where humpbacks come in and try and almost intervene in, in a hunt. I've seen uh, that killer whale personally hunt. in 2014. Sorry, oh, no. you have. Yeah. So it was your impression that they were trying to intervene? Yeah, they got right in the middle of, well, the killer whales. So the killer whales had already killed the gray whale calf at that point. Um, but the humpback whales were in very, very close proximity to the, the carcass um, as the whales were trying to feed. And the same thing that you witnessed with, with Sam um, and those humpback whales, like trumpeting and rolling and tail slapping and just being extra, as you put it, a perfect term for it. 
um, for for hours, for hours. We were, you know, there out the whole day, um, and the hunt had, you know, commenced early in the day. So we were there kind of through the hunt and, and them killing the calf and uh, heartbreaking to watch, but very fascinating. And, and then seeing these humpback whales come in, and we left before the whales had finished, and we left before the humpback whales had left there. Wow. Just another like aspect of what makes humpbacks so fascinating. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I, I, I can't, th- I'm trying to think of another species that would try and intervene in the behaviors of a, a totally unrelated, like it's totally unrelated, right? It's, it's, the humpbacks aren't being threatened. They're not part of this. And then they come in and, and it's like, they're trying to break up the fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the killer whales are just trying to eat. Right. 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 <laughs> well, okay. And I can say this because I am a vegan, but I just, I just thought of something. It's a little bit like the vegan activists coming in, <laughs> and, you know, trying to, educate people about their food choices that's maybe funny. that's what maybe. humpbacks are doing <laughs> that is that is funny to think about it that way <laughs> i'm just trying i was just thinking about the video of the woman that was in the water with the humpback whale and the humpback whale was like trying to like lift her up on his pectoral fin and um or pectoral fl- pectoral flipper um go back and forth on that anyway um and then there was the shark below i'm sure you guys have both seen that that video and i was just well what do you guys think about that i don't know but i I was just thinking like what if the humpback whale was just trying to tell the shark like yeah we don't eat this you know (laughs) (laughs) it's not good for you (laughs) junk food or grow up or what if the shark was maybe just a fun addition to the story and had nothing to do with yeah. anything. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there was any like video of the shark. It was just kind of anecdotal after the fact, like, but I'm, I'm not, you know, like I don't have any foot in the game. Right. I don't know, but yeah. Well, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's very, that's very right. good point. That's right. <laughs> and I, I, or, I do, I do like that people have, have sent in, uh, questions and, and stories. And so we definitely want to keep hearing from people, uh, you know, give us some, some ratings or email us at info at after the breach podcast, give us some feedback questions, your own whale stories. We definitely want to hear from people. Definitely. Definitely. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's late. My brain is, yeah, it's fading, but, um, I do want to mention this because Tasley is probably my all-time favorite whale artist out here. Um, her stickers adorn many of my water bottles and coffee mugs, and I do buy them and pass them on to friends. So, um, Tasley, uh, where can people find your artwork? Oh, that's so sweet. I obviously feel the same way about you and also have your stickers all over my stuff. <laughs> um, so my artwork is found at um, tasleyshaw.com. No free mini fridge um, <laughs> with purchase on this website. But yeah, tasleyshaw.com. And we'll and, post um, that link in the show notes also. Yeah, definitely. We'd love to do that. 
Everybody should go check out Sarah's stickers too, because she makes really cool ones with entire macho lines of whales. At least two of them. <laughs> I try, I'm going to try to do more. I might, it's my goal. All I right. can't wait. Well, Jeff, sorry, I interrupted you earlier about it's, your recent sightings. It's, uh, yeah, it's okay. I, I don't want to let an episode conclude without mentioning some of the recent sightings uh, that we've had here because we've had some some incredible, incredible encounters. Um, one that I'll just throw out there and I'll post a photo. Um, we had talked, I think, on the last episode about whales going down Saanich Inlet and being such a... a beautiful memorable place and, and right in Tassley's backyard right in Tassley's backyard and we had we had another <laughs> uh, another amazing uh trip down there with the uh big killer whales of the T123s and it's just it's hard to describe this area it's just it's a narrow channel with really steep mountainous uh surroundings on each side and and dense forest and it's lots of porpoise to eat lots of porpoise to eat but it, it is it is like it, it's unlike any other place i've ever been with with whales it's it's absolutely incredible and sarah you can give an update we have an update on the t34a1 saga it's this is like a soap opera because it goes on every week there's an update right now yeah and actually tassel you were out the other night i mean when we were out with the 49as obviously different boats but um Gary messaged that you guys found the 65Bs, and it sounds like 34A1 was there too. So uh, 34A1, um, just to recap quick, uh, left mom at a very young age, two years old, was seen with the 36Bs, and then we actually, Jeff and I were out on um, the 24th of last month, June 24th, and found her with the 37As. So this... uh Young whale, this would be her cousin. Mm. Isn't third? Wait, would thirty-seven A yeah. would be her cousin and and yeah. all her all her and her other cousins, thirty all the thirty-seven A's. And then three days later, we found the thirty-seven A's again, and no thirty-four A one. Right, and then it was like, well, what happened to thirty-four A one? Where, what family is she with now? And. <laughs> now apparently lo and behold <laughs> the 65 bees but yeah do you want to talk briefly about that because it kind of sounded interesting and you can share as much or as little as you want it it was yeah it we were we were only with them for a brief period of time but um kind of knowing knowing the backstory um it kind of i think I had a bit of um, bias as to what I was observing. Um, and it almost felt like they were a little unsure of this little whale following them around. And I don't know, they were, they were just kind of milling around a lot and slowly zigzagging. Like I said, we didn't, we didn't stay with them very long to like really establish truly what was going on. But yeah, it felt like a little bit of trepidation in the group, like something wasn't totally right. Um, well, cause it's not, they've got right. this little weirdo following them, <laughs> but it's very interesting that it's very interesting that you guys saw the little one with the 37 A's that day, because did you, or did you not think that 
the, the little guy was with the 37As going through Polar Pass, and then they turned around, and then it wasn't there anymore? Yeah, so, and I'm not, you know, photo, no picture, no proof, right? When we first got on scene in Polar Pass, I really, like, will still swear to this day that I saw six whales and that 34A1 was there. Um, but we, it was extreme current that day and, and just kind of crazy and they were everywhere in long dives and, um, and kind of like a lot of direction changes in this current. We thought they were coming into the pass. They kind of came in, went and to the south side of the pass, came back to the north side of the pass. And, went and to then the they totally turned around. West side. And then they, and then they suddenly like long dive, were back out of the pass and heading northwest on, on the east side of Gabriola. I mean, I, I wonder if 34A1 was there. I wonder if it's like, okay, we're going to take you as far as the pass, and then you're on your own, and we're going back north. But then I never saw her again. So I was like, well, maybe I just hallucinated a, a small whale. But she she may have kept going, and we were with the the – we turned around with the 37As, and 34A1 could have just kept going and until she hooked up with the 65Bs. That that's really interesting to consider that you might have seen the moment where she left one group and then wandered for however many days and then somehow found another group to pal around with. This whole the whole saga and this whole social the complex social system of all these families and and how um, how how they mix and who's friends with who it's just it's so incredibly fascinating yeah and i thought it was really funny how on on the 24th when we did find her with the 37 a's that she had last been seen with 37 a1 who wanders by herself as well uh and it made me wonder if like 37 a1 hooked up with her and was like back to mom dropping off the kid i gotta do my own thing here she is right on you right right (laughs) hey mom this is your cousin deal with her i'm out (laughs) It was just interesting because 37A1 wasn't there with the 37As no. and 34A1 that day. No. So the last time we saw 34A1 was with 37A1. And then the next time we saw 34A1, she was with the 37As without 30, 37A1. So, yeah, it's like 37A1 took her back to her mom and said, hey, here's your little cousin. Not, I, I, I'm not taking care of her. You deal with her. <laughs> Yeah, 37A1 uh, doesn't really seem like socially very well equipped to deal with a situation like that, being that they just totally left their match line. Yeah. <laughs> like, more of a loner maybe than anything. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Um, we also have, uh, in our recent sightings, we have a very, very new calf. Who actually, Tasley, were you out that night? My man Darty with Gary and you saw the yeah, it was yes. so exciting! Oh my god, <laughs> I was I was so close to going, and I just I was so tired. And Sarah's like, "Hey, can I take the boat?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And she's like, "Are you coming?" I'm like, "No, I've had two glasses of wine, and I'm on my couch, and I'm not moving." Um, but, I, but I did did get to see the calf. Uh, I think the next day or two days later. Yeah, so new kid in the 36As. 36A had a new calf. End of last year, early this year, are, are we sure? Do we know? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I, I don't okay. know precisely. Okay. Uh, yeah, sometime it was last year. But can I just say that? Yeah. Um, um, so that's um, thirty six A five, right? Mm-hmm. Is the youngest one. So 
36A4, um, that whale, right. remember that? We were the, yeah, so this, yeah, up by so, Porlier. Okay, exactly. So back to Polier Pass. Um, this was, I guess it was probably in 2019, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, the 36 days were hanging around Polier Pass and like really hanging around kind of like for an abnormally long period of time. And um, when I got on scene, like um, um, I couldn't really tell what was going on. I knew that like we, everybody had documented this new calf in the group, which had been designated 36 day four. And anyway, it became clear eventually long story short that the calf was deceased and that they were pushing the carcass around. Yeah. I um, remember that. Yeah, so, um, because I know there was a bit of confusion when the calf was born, whether it was 36As or her daughters, 36A1, because I think you actually had photos of the calf maybe being with both of them in the Mm -hmm. same encounter, or there was something confusing about that. So, during this encounter with, unfortunately, with the deceased calf, it was 36A that was pushing it around, and then actually the following days um the cetacean research team in the nimo um found the same group the 36 days and she still had the calf then as well um so she had it for at least like 36 hours mm-hmm. um and so since it was her pushing it around we kind of assume it was her calf and not 36 a ones um so yeah it was just kind of a like a bummer obviously and it's of course when you have those kind of emotional encounters you feel like more connected to a certain family group so when gary and i were um off kelp reef the other night and we saw this little babushka popping up next to 36a1 it was just like yeah yeah this is awesome yeah i know i felt really happy to see that that new little calf in there well and it's and it's and- it's so cool it so the encounter that i had with them um a few days later so there's a five month old in this family, ish. and there's a five week old ish maybe. Yeah. Um, so you have these two little kids, and I and the rest of the group, they were in a resting line. So they were they were resting. They were doing long dives, really really close together, and what what we would assume is is a resting group. The two calves were just spazzing out and and just chasing each other around but when the when the rest of the group would come up in their resting line the calves would get back into the line like no 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 we're sleeping we're sleeping we're fine and then everybody would go down and the calves would start chasing each other around again it was so funny to watch that was pretty cute oh boy they've got their flippers full with those two (laughs) (laughs) that they do well no i was really excited to see you know, potentially once confirmed T36A1 has a calf. Cause I don't know. I, I really like that whale. I like that family a lot. You know what? I do too. And just to bring it back to humpbacks, was that not the day that the three of us saw each other on the water and you guys were like, okay, we're going to go look for humpbacks down the yes. Galliano yes. shoreline. And that yes. was the day that you found the T36As. Yeah, yeah, it was. The all roads lead back to humpbacks. Right. Yeah. I forgot about that. We were looking for humpbacks 
um, when we found the 36 A's. And we almost well, turned they kind of found out. Yeah, they, they, right? Yeah, I wanted to go. Sarah really wanted to go back home on the inside um, of yeah. these islands. And I'm like, oh, I want to go look for humpbacks on the outside of these islands. And uh, we were just about done and, and getting ready to cross over to go on the other side of these islands. And the 36 A's popped up right in front of us. And uh, yeah, that was that was epic. But yeah, we and we never found humpbacks that day. No, nope, but we found those well, cute baby whales. We did. Yeah, and that's that's uh, pretty chickity boo. And it was all thanks to you because you really did like convince Jeff that he shouldn't listen oh. to me. He should definitely go down the outside. <laughs> it, 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 it is. It true. would have been my fault. We had missed those whales for sure. Yeah, no, it it is it is true because you were telling me about a humpback that you found, um, or Gary or Simon f- had found a few days before, and so I was like, okay, yeah, we're definitely going down the outside and we're we're looking for humpbacks. Well, I'm happy my intuition works sometimes. It never <laughs> seems to work for me. So I'm glad it works for you guys. <laughs> we just have to help each other because my, my intuition never works for myself, but it always seems to work for other people. So there you go. We'll just have a text thread or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, the last recent sighting was really exciting to me as we found, you know, bringing it back to humpbacks because all roads lead to humpbacks um nike nike's back and hydra they were <gasps> two of them were together in swanson so uh i was really stoked to see nike and hydra too of course but but definitely nike is, is nike. definitely a, a fan favorite for for a lot of people um nike has uh, a reputation for enjoying some of those intimate encounters with people that uh that we were talking about early in earlier in, in the episode um i think probably the longest duration um, in, interaction that I've had uh, with with humpbacks near the boat is, has been with Nike. Just so saying, glad I've, he's back. I, I've never had that encounter with Nike. I'm not bitter or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's back, so you've got your chance this summer. Right, another year. <laughs> well. Um, Really loved having you on, Tasley. I hope you wouldn't mind coming back on again because we'd definitely love to have you on multiple times in the future. Thank you so much, both of you guys. I was so nervous. I just (laughs) hope... uh, (laughs) I hope... um, I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. And again, thank you guys for having me on. I know it's like... It's really late for us. (laughs) Uh, island folk <laughs> especially after a day on the water so yeah I really appreciate it and go humpbacks go thank you so much Tasley this was great great having you and if you enjoyed the, listening to this episode please share it with your friends follow us and subscribe uh, send us an email uh, with feedback or questions to info at afterthebreachpodcast.com you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube Uh, And we look forward to hearing from you and look forward to uh, seeing you on our next episode. Yeah. And if you guys have any questions for Tasley, if this like spurred a love of humpback whales and and you have more questions, like feel free to reach out to us. Um, We're definitely going to have her back on. So we're happy to um, post those questions to her at a later date. Uh, And our plan is for our next episode to drop on July 18th. So just two weeks from 
the time that this one airs, and we'll see you guys soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tasley. Good night. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>